This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Middlemarch by George Eliot. Chapter 14. Follows here the strict receipt for that sauce to dainty meat named idleness which many eat by preference and call it sweet first watch for morsels like a hound mix well with buffets stir them round with good thick oil of flatteries and froth with me self-lauding lies serve warm the vessels you must choose to keep it in our dead men's shoes mr balstrow's consultation of harriet seemed to have had the effect desired by mr vincey for early the next morning a letter came which fred could carry to mr featherstone as the required testimony the old gentleman was staying in bed on account of the cold weather and as mary garth was not to be seen in the sitting-room fred went upstairs immediately and presented the letter to his uncle who propped up comfortably on the bed-rest was not less able than usual to enjoy his consciousness of wisdom in distrusting and frustrating mankind he put on the spectacles to read the letter, pursuing up his lips and drawing down their corners. "'Under the circumstances I will not decline to state my conviction—' Tcha! What fine words the fellow puts! He's as fine as an auctioneer. That your son Frederick has not obtained any advance of money on bequests promised by Mr. Featherstone—' "'Promised! Who said I had ever promised? I promise nothing. I shall make codicils as long as I like, and that, considering the nature of such proceeding, it is unreasonable to presume that a young man of sense and character would attempt it. Ah, but the gentleman doesn't say you are a young man of sense and character. Mark you that, sir.' as to my own concern with any report of such nature i distinctly affirm that i never made any statement to the effect that your son had borrowed money on any property that might accrue to him on mr featherstone's demise bless my heart property accrue demise lawyer standish is nothing to him he couldn't speak finer if he wanted to borrow well Mr. Featherstone here looked over his spectacles at Fred, while he handed back the letter to him, with a contemptuous gesture. "'You don't suppose I believe a thing because Bulster writes it out fine, eh?' Fred collared. "'You wish to have the letter, sir. I should think it very likely that Mr. Bulstrode's denials is as good as the authority which told you what he denies.' "'Every bit. I never said I believed either one or the other. Now—' "'What do you expect?' said Mr. Featherstone, curtly, keeping on his spectacles, but withdrawing his hands under his wraps. "'I expect nothing, sir,' Fred with difficulty restrained himself from venting his irritation. "'I came to bring you the letter. If you like, I will bid you good morning.' "'Not yet, not yet. Ring the bell. I want Missy to come.' It was a servant who came in answer to the bell. "'Tell Missy to come.' said Mr. Featherstone impatiently. What business had she to go away? He spoke in the same tone when Mary came. Why couldn't you sit still here till I told you to go? Want my waistcoat now? I told you always to put it on the bed. Mary's eyes looked rather red as if she had been crying. It was clear that Mr. Featherstone was in one of his most snappish humours this morning, and though Fred had now the prospect of receiving the much-needed present of money, he would have preferred being free to turn round on the old tyrant and tell him that Mary Garth was too good to be at his beck. 
though fred had risen as she entered the room she had barely noticed him and looked as if her nerves were quivering with the expectation that something would be thrown at her but she never had anything worse than words to dread when she went to reach the waistcoat from a peg fred went up to her side and said allow me let it alone you bring it missy and lay it down here said mr featherstone now you go away again till i call you he added when the waistcoat was laid down by him it was usual with him to season his pleasure in showing favour to one person by being especially disagreeable to another and mary was always at hand to furnish the condiment when his own relatives came she was treated better slowly he took out a bunch of keys from the waistcoat pocket and slowly he drew forth a tin-box which was under the bedcloth you expect i'm going to give you a little fortune eh he said looking about his spectacles and pausing in the act of opening the lid not at all sir you were good enough to speak of making me present the other day else of course i should not have thought of the matter but fred was of a hopeful disposition and a vision had presented itself of a sum just large enough to deliver him from a certain anxiety when fred got into debt it always seemed to him highly probable that something or other he did not necessarily conceive what would come to pass enabling him to pay in due time and now that the providential occurrence was apparently close at hand it would have been sheer absurdity to think that the supply would be short of the need as absurd as a faith that believed in half a miracle for want of strength to believe in a whole one the deep-veined hands fingered many banknotes one after the other laying them down flat again while fred leaned back in his chair scorning to look eager he held himself to be a gentleman at heart and did not like courting an old fellow for his money at last mr featherstone eyed him again over his spectacles and presented him with a little sheaf of notes fred could see distinctly that there were but five as the less significant edges gaped towards him but then each might mean fifty pounds he took them saying i am uh, very much obliged to you sir and was going to roll them up without seeming to think of their value but this did not suit mr featherstone who was eyeing him intently come don't you think it worth your while to count them you take money like a lord i suppose you lose it like one i thought i was not to look a gift horse in the mouth sir but i shall be very happy to count them fred was not so happy however after he had counted them for they actually presented the absurdity of being less than his hopefulness had decided that they must be what can the fitness of things mean if not their fitness to a man's expectations failing this absurdity and atheism gaped behind him the collapse for fred was severe when he found that he held no more than five twenties and his share in the higher education of his country did not seem to help him nevertheless he said with rapid changes in his fair complexion it is very handsome of you sir i should think it is said mr featherstone locking his box and replacing it then taking off his spectacles deliberately and at length as if his inward meditation had more deeply convinced him repeating i should think it handsome i assure you sir i am very grateful said fred who had had time to recover his cheerful air so you ought to be you want to cut a figure in the world and i reckon peter featherstone is the only one you've got to trust to 
Here the old man's eyes gleamed with a curiously mingled satisfaction in the consciousness that this smart young fellow relied upon him, and that the smart young fellow was rather a fool for doing so. Yes, indeed. I was not born to very splendid chances. Few men have been more cramped than I have been, said Fred, with some sense of surprise at his own virtue, considering how hardly he was dealt with. It really seems a little too bad to have to ride a broken, winded hunter, and see men, who are not half such good judges as yourself, able to throw away any amount of money on buying bad bargains. Well, you can buy yourself a fine hunter now. Eighty pound is enough for that, I reckon. And you'll have twenty pound over to get yourself out of any little scrape, said Mr. Featherstone, chuckling slightly. You are very good, sir, said Fred, with a fine sense of contrast between the words and his feeling. Aye, rather a better uncle than your fine uncle Balstrud. You won't get much out of his speculations, I think. He's got a pretty strong string round your father's leg by what I hear, eh? My father never tells me anything about his affairs, sir. Well, he shows some sense there but other people find em out without his telling. He'll never have much to leave you. He'll most like die without will. He's the sort of man to do it. Let em make him mayor of Middlemarch as much as they like. But you won't get much by his dying without a will, though you are the eldest son. Fred thought that Mr. Featherstone had never been so disagreeable before. True, he had never before given him quite so much money at once. "'Shall I destroy this letter of Mr. Balstrud's, sir?' said Fred, rising with the letter as if he would put it in the fire. "'Aye, aye, I don't want it. It's worth no money to me.' Fred carried the letter to the fire, and thrust the poker through it with much zest. He longed to get out of the room, but he was a little ashamed before his inner self, as well as before his uncle, to run away immediately after pocketing the money. Presently the farm bailiff came up to give his master a report, and Fred, to his unspeakable relief, was dismissed with the injunction to come again soon. He had longed not only to be set free from his uncle, but also to find Mary Garth. She was now in her usual place by the fire, with sewing in her hands and a book open on the little table by her side. Her eyelids had lost some of their redness now, and she had her usual air of self-command. "'Am I wanted upstairs?' she said, half-rising as Fred entered. "'No, I'm only dismissed because Simmons is gone up,' Mary sat down again, and resumed her work. She was certainly treating him with more indifference than usual. She did not know how affectionately indignant he had felt on her behalf upstairs. "'May I stay here a little, Mary? Or shall I bore you?' "'Pray sit down,' said Mary. "'You will not be so heavy a bore as Mr. John Wall, who was here yesterday, and he sat down without asking my leave. Poor fellow, I think he is in love with you. I am not aware of it, and to me it is one of the most odious things in a girl's life, that there must always be some supposition of falling in love coming between her and any man who is kind to her, and to whom she is grateful.' I should have thought that I, at least, might have been saved from all that. I have no ground for the nonsensical vanity of fancying everybody who comes near me is in love with me. Mary did not mean to betray any feeling, but, in spite of herself, she ended in a tremulous tone of vexation. Confound John Wall! 
I did not mean to make you angry. I didn't know you had any reason for being grateful to me. I forgot what a great service you think it, if anyone snuffs a candle for you. Fred also had his pride, and was not going to show that he knew what had called forth this outburst of Mary's. Oh, I'm not angry, except with the ways of the world. I do like to be spoken to as if I had common sense. I really often feel that if I could understand a little more than I ever hear even from young gentlemen who have been to college. Mary had recovered, and she spoke with a suppressed stripling undercurrent of laughter, pleasant to hear. "'I don't care how merry you are at my expense this morning,' said Fred. "'I thought you looked so sad when you came upstairs. "'It's a shame you should stay here to be bullied in that way. "'Oh, I have an easy life by comparison. "'I have tried being a teacher, and I am not fit for that. "'My mind is too fond of wandering on its own way. "'I think any hardship is better than pretending to do what one is paid for "'and never really doing it.' Everything here I can do as well as anyone else could, perhaps better than some, Rosie, for example, though she's just the sort of beautiful creature that is imprisoned with augurs in fairy tales. Rosie? cried Fred in a tone of profound brotherly scepticism. Come, Fred, said Mary emphatically, you have no right to be so critical. Do you mean anything particular just now? No, I mean something general, always. Oh, that I'm idle and extravagant. "'Well, I'm not fit to be a poor man. "'I should not have made a bad fellow if I had been rich. "'You would have done your duty in that state of life "'to which it has not pleased God to call you,' said Mary, laughing. "'Well, I couldn't do my duty as a clergyman "'any more than you could do yours as a governess. "'You ought to have a little fellow-feeling in there, Mary.' "'I never said you ought to be a clergyman.' There are other sorts of work. It seems to me very miserable not to resolve on some course and act accordingly. So I could if... Fred broke off and stood up, leaning against the mantelpiece. If you were sure you should not have a fortune? I did not say that. You want to quarrel with me. It's too bad of you to be guided by what other people say about me. How can I want to quarrel with you? "'I should be quarrelling with all my new books,' said Mary, lifting the volume on the table. "'However naughty you may be to other people, you are good to me, because I like you better than anyone else. But I know you despise me.' "'Yes, I do a little,' said Mary, nodding with a smile. "'You would admire a stupendous fellow who would have wise opinions about everything.' "'Yes, I should,' Mary was suing swiftly, and seemed provokingly mistress of the situation. When a conversation had taken a wrong turn for us, we only get farther and farther into the swamp of awkwardness. This was what Fred Vincey felt. "'I suppose a woman is never in love with anyone she has always known, ever since she can remember, as a man often is. It is always some new fellow who strikes a girl.' "'Let me see,' said Mary." the corners of her mouth curling archly. I must go back on my experience. There's Juliet. She seems an example of what you say. But then Ophelia had probably known Hamlet a long while, and Brenda Troy she had known Mordaunt Merton ever since they were children. But then he seems to have been an estimable young man, and Minna was still more deeply in love with Cleveland, who was a stranger. Waverley was new to Flora Macklevore, but then she did not fall in love with him. And there are Olivia and Sophia Primrose and Corinne. They may be said to have fallen in love with new men. Altogether, my experience is rather mixed. 
Mary looked up with some roguishness at Fred, and that look of hers was dear to him, though the eyes were nothing more than clear windows where observation sat laughingly. He was certainly an affectionate fellow, and, as he had grown from boy to man, he had grown in love with his old playmate, notwithstanding that share in the higher education of the country which had exalted his views of rank and income. When a man is not loved, it is no use for him to say that he could be a better fellow, could do anything, I mean, if he were sure of being loved in return. Not of the least use in the world for him to say he could be better. Might, could, would, they are contemptible auxiliaries. I don't see how a man is to be good for much unless he has some one woman to love him dearly. I think the goodness should come before he expects that. You know better, Mary. Women don't love men for their goodness. Perhaps not, but if they love them, they never think them bad. It is hardly fair to say I am bad. I said nothing at all about you. I never shall be good for anything, Mary, if you will not say that you love me, if you will not promise to marry me, I mean, when I am able to marry. If I did love you, I would not marry you. I would certainly not promise ever to marry you. I think that is quite wicked, Mary. If you love me, you ought to promise to marry me. On the contrary, I think it would be wicked in me to marry you even if I did love you. You mean, just as I am, without any means of maintaining a wife? Of course, I am but three-and-twenty. In that last point you will alter. But I am not sure of any other alteration. My father says an idle man ought not to exist, much less be married. Then I am to blow my brains out? No, on the whole I should think you would do better to pass your examination. I've heard Mr. Fairbrother say it's disgracefully easy. That is all very fine. Anything is easy to him. Not that cleverness has anything to do with it. I am ten times cleverer than many men who pass. Dear me, said Mary, unable to repress her sarcasm. That accounts for the curates like Mr. Krause. Divide your cleverness by ten, and the quotient, dear me, is able to take a gree but that only shows you are ten times more idle than the others. Well, if I did pass, you would not want me to go into the church? That is not the question, what I want you to do. You have a conscience of your own, I suppose. There, there is Mr. Lydgate. I must go and tell my uncle. Mary, said Fred, seizing her hand as she rose, if you will not give me some encouragement, I shall get worse instead of better. I will not give you any encouragement, said Mary Redding. Your friends would dislike it, and so would mine. My father would think it a disgrace to me if I accepted a man who got into debt and would not work. Fred was stung and released her hand. She walked to the door, but there she turned and said, Fred, you have always been so good, so generous to me. I am not ungrateful, but never speak to me in that way again. Very well, said Fred sulkily, taking up his hat and whip. His complexion showed patches of pale pink and dead white. Like many a plucked idle young gentleman, he was thoroughly in love and with a plain girl who had no money. But having Mr. Featherstone's land in the background and a persuasion that, let Mary say what she would, she really did care for him, Fred was not utterly in despair. 
When he got home, he gave four of the twenties to his mother, asking her to keep them for him. I don't want to spend that money, mother. I want it to pay a debt with, so keep it safe from my fingers. Bless you, my dear, said Mrs. Vincey. She doted on her eldest son and her youngest girl, a child of six, whom others thought her two naughtiest children. The mother's eyes are not always deceived in their partiality. She at least can best judge who is the tender, filial-hearted child, and Fred was certainly very fond of his mother. Perhaps it was his fondness for another person also that made him particularly anxious to take some security against his own liability to spend the hundred pounds, for the creditor to whom he owed a hundred and sixty held a firmer security in the shape of a bill signed by Mary's father. End of chapter 14 of Middlemarch by George Eliot Read by Lars Rolander.